Well, good morning. Glad you're here. As we continue in our series this morning, we come to the end of 1 Chronicles and 2 Samuel. And as we come to the end, this is an appropriate title, it's the last words. <laughs> it's the last words of King David. We've looked at the life of King David over and over again. You know, last words are interesting. The last words that when people know they're dying that they give, that they write down. I read this week of a hiker who got lost in an Appalachian trail and she couldn't find her way back. She was only a mile from the trail and they went and looked for her, but they looked in the wrong spot and her husband was waiting for her and of course she didn't show up and the tragedy was she sat and she knew when she was dying, she ran through her food, she was weak and she wrote notes to all of her family, her last words and put them in a Ziploc bag so that whatever happened, they would be there for her family and she was found two years later. And those notes became a healing balm to her family. Those notes of her love for them and her gratitude for the life she lived. And, you know, our last words are important. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I've thought this. I don't know if you have. I've thought many times about my last words, and I'm always scared that I'm going to get in a car accident and die. Because when I'm driving, my words aren't necessarily real holy. I have to redeem them often, right? I do. Like, somebody will be like, you know, because you cut me off, you know, and like, I could just see myself like going off a cliff and being like, oh, Matt, you dummy, boom, you know, and that's my last words, you know, and God's like, you're a dummy? I created you. I love you. I saved you. Is that really how you feel? That's not your identity. That's not how I tell you. Like, I could just see like, what are my last words going to be? You know, and I think like that. And in this moment, David has the opportunity. He's dying. He's passing away. He's come to the end of his life to write down his last words. That's unusual. Most of us will not get the opportunity to write down our last words. It'll just happen and you'll be gone. That's how most people die in the world. It's sudden and you're gone. So here's what it says in 2 Samuel 23. These are the last words of David. The declaration of David, son of Jesse, the declaration of the man raised on high, the one anointed by the God of Jacob, the favorite singer of Israel. That's a good title. <laughs> That's a pretty amazing title, right? This is the last declaration. And so this is, this is David's last will and testament. And he said the man that was raised on high, the, the man that was anointed by God and the favorite singer in Israel. And remember, David had no perfect life. We've looked at this. Look at the life. What happened? Tell me. This is David's life. Age 11, he's anointed. 12, he becomes a musician for Saul. 15, he kills Goliath. At 20, he's a commander in Saul's army. At He's then threatened at 25 by Saul, and he's on the run for the next two to three years. For his life, Saul trying to kill him. He had numerous opportunities to kill Saul, but he wouldn't take it into his own hands. He waited on the Lord. At, at age 28, he fights for the Philistine king, instead of, and then the king kills Saul, and then he turns on the Philistine king. He's in the wrong camp. He's on the wrong team. At age 30, he's anointed king of Judah, but then he has to wait seven more years to be anointed the king of Israel after he was anointed at 11. He has to wait, nine, I, I always do the math wrong, he had to wait 26 years, 26 years from the time he was anointed king until the time he's actually king. Most of you haven't been alive that long, and David had to wait that long knowing he was the king. He wants to build a temple. God says you can't. He then decides to take it easy. 
I've done enough. It's time I'm in my midlife. Look at all I've done. And in taking it easy, he commits adultery with Bathsheba and has her husband murdered to cover up his sin. He then repents. It's a mess. A baby dies. Another baby's born. That's King Solomon or Solomon who will become king. David does the right thing. But in the midst of all this, he has a family mess. He is in the midst of a midlife crisis family mess all over the place. He's got a son that sleeps with, a do- with one of his sister, a stepsister. He's got multiple wives, which he's not supposed to have. We've looked at all of this. David is a mess. And I love how everybody's like, oh, King David. I'm like, oh, King David. It's by the grace of God that he did anything. And it goes on. He becomes depressed because one of his sons overthrows the kingdom and he quits, literally surrenders the kingdom to his son and walks off because he's really not a good father if you read the scriptures. He doesn't hold his sons accountable. He doesn't follow the Old Testament law with his kids. Pretty common today too in our culture. It goes on and it says the son rebels, but then he's killed by a commander that David told him not to kill his son. David's restored to the kingdom. There's still division all over the kingdom because of this mess and because of David's bad leadership. There's an illegal census taken. David takes an illegal census that he's not supposed to take. It causes a famine. Or I'm sorry, there was a famine before that because of what King Saul did, and David had to fix that. Now you've got this, David is takes an illegal census. He counts what he's not supposed to count, and that causes a plague to break out. And 70,000 men die plus women and children. How'd you like to be responsible for that? Then he starts the temple building again. Even though God said he didn't want a temple, David's still determined to build a temple. And so he starts the temple building process and storing up wealth so that one of his sons can build a temple and have the legacy David wants him to have, even though not necessarily, we looked at that last week, there's a good argument to say God never wanted a temple. Just like God never wanted a king. Can God use kings? Yep, he does all the time. Can God use temples? Absolutely. Does he have to have one? No, he'd prefer not. Goes on and then finally here we are at David's last words. It goes on to say this. The spirit of the Lord spoke through me, David said. His word was on my tongue. Have you read Psalms? (laughs) The spirit of the Lord was on David. God's word was on his tongues and he wrote it all down and we still read it today. Normally at our worst moments. Right? Because David can sympathize with our sin because he was a mess. It goes on, it says, The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, The one who rules the people with justice, who rules uh, in the fear of God, is like the morning light when the sun rises on a cloudless morning, the glistening of rain on sprouting grass. Is it not true my house is with God? I just walked you through All the disaster that David left in his wake. A mess of a life. Sin all over the place. And David looks at the people and he looks at everyone and says, you show me that God isn't with my house. Well, you killed Uriah. You... you you committed adultery, you took an illegal census, 70,000 plus people died. You, you did all these things. That doesn't mean God's not with me. That means I'm an idiot. <laughs> that means I'm a sinner. Oh, and by the way, I owned all of the sin of those things. David kept owning his sin. He kept saying, yep, I did it. That wasn't God, that was me. And I got to get back to God. I got to continue to surrender to him. See, that's the beauty of David. He looks and he says, my house is with God because God has chosen for my house to be with him. 
This isn't about me trying to get God to be with my house. That's what Saul did. I didn't do that. I just said, God, this is your house. You do what you want with it. And when I messed it up, I went back to him and said, sorry, messed up your house. Help me clean it up. See, that's the beauty of David's heart. You see his heart is for God himself. It says, for he has established an everlasting covenant with me, ordered and secured in every detail. He will not bring about my whole Or will he not bring about my whole salvation and my every desire? But all the wicked are like the thorns raked aside. They can never be picked up by hand. The man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear. They will be completely burned up on the spot. David is giving a prophetic and clear indication of what it's going to be like in the last days for those of us who know Jesus. See, your salvation isn't determined by you. Your salvation is determined by God. And when you make that decision to say, God, I am yours, my house is yours, my body, this house, which we looked at before, this is the new temple. The human body is the new temple, not a physical building. That's what the New Testament teaches. This body, I surrender to you. When that happens, it's God who is bringing about your whole salvation, and it's God who is changing your desires into his desires so that you will see that one day I'll have all the desires that I ever wanted that glorify him instead of the desires that I want that glorify me. See, David is laying out the gospel clearly. David writes in Psalm 1, 27, 1, unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. In vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. He gives rest, Sabbath, peace. If you're not at rest, what are you trying to build? That doesn't mean your life isn't busy. It doesn't mean there's not responsibility and all kinds of things. But if you don't have the ability to pause and rest, if it's always got to do one more thing, one more thing, and you don't know how to shut it off, can I just tell you, you're probably building the wrong thing and you're probably not going to have the right words at the end of your life. Your last words are going to be, oh no, I didn't get it all done, not... I can't wait to see you, Lord. David is writing and he's like, man, make sure you're building the right house. You know, I'm amazed at the Christians in our culture that are all about building education, building families, building all these things, and they neglect God's house, his bride, the church. Well, I don't have to be a Christian and go to church. (laughs) Okay, you're right. You don't have to be a father and be married either, but it does go a lot better for your children long term. See, God has called us to build something new, and we're going to see that in a moment. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said, Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, sorry, I'll go back, my bad, and acts on them, will be like a sensible man who built his house On a rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house. There's a hurricane hitting where right now? The East Coast, New York, moving up through Boston, and they are panicked. You want to know why? Because they built on sand. They literally like built islands in the ocean, and now that they're having a storm, they're like, oh, yeah, everybody get out because it's going to come up, and we didn't really plan for that. No, you didn't. You just thought it would always be fine and it would always go okay. I'm not saying that's wrong or evil. I'm just saying you have to recognize what you built on. 
And at the end of your life, when everything come, comes crashing down, it's going to be exposed what you built your life on. And Jesus says this. He said, it was built on the rock and it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears the words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The words he's talking about, are you ready for this? Is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most challenging sermons you'll ever hear preached or read in your life. It turns the world upside down. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you when they persecute you. You read through the Sermon on the Mount and you're like, what? And Jesus says, if you'll listen to this and build your life on these things, it'll last. If you don't, it'll be sand. There won't be anything when you get to heaven. There'll be nothing that you've built. You might get in the doors because you know Jesus because salvation is determined by that. But did you send anything on ahead to build? 2 Samuel 23 says, these are the names of David's warriors. You know, what's crazy to me is that God takes the time God takes the time to be sure that he mentions our name. In Revelation and in Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 is a list of names. In Revelation, God says our name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. It says this. He goes on and he lists these men that built their lives on the rock of Jesus, built their lives for Israel and the people of God, fought and gave their lives for Israel. God in this passage only mentions a handful, but there were tens of thousands of soldiers. And you see, here's our deal. In our day, you ready for this? We're not content to be one of the tens of thousands. I need to be one of, the, one of these guys that's got a good following on Twitter and Facebook. You know, I got to have the first guy up, the Josheb Beshebeth following. He's got a million followers on Facebook. That's me, Right? What about the 10,000 men under it? Just because someone's mentioned doesn't mean they're more valuable than someone else. Just means God wanted to mention them. It goes on, it says he's the Tachamanite, was chief of the officers. He wielded his spear against 800 men that he killed at one time. That's like a scene out of Avengers. After the, him, Eleazar, son of, I love this, Dodo. How would you like that to be? Like, I'm the son of Dodo. Okay, Dodo's son, of Ahoite was among the three warriors with David when they defeated the Philistines. The men of Israel retreated in the place they had gathered for battle, but Eleazar stood his ground. Keep that in mind. He stood his ground and attacked the Philistines until his hand was tired and stuck to his sword. Have you ever done that? Like when I'm doing construction and you're wielding a hammer or using a drill, there are times when it's like you can't get your hand off of it because you've been using it so long. You're like, ah. Oh. I mean, it's like your muscles are locked up. That's what it says about this guy. It says, the Lord brought about a great victory that day. After him was Shammah, son of Agi, the Harite. The Philistines had assembled in formation there, and there was a field full of lentils. The troops fled from the Philistines, but Shammah took his stand, took his stand in the middle of the field, defended it, and struck down the Philistines, so the Lord brought about a great victory today. God is giving the last words about these people's lives. Three of the 30 leading warriors went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave at 
Adullam, where a company of Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephraim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and a Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David was extremely thirsty and said, If only someone would bring me water to drink from the well at the city gate of Bethlehem. So three of the warriors broke through the Philistine camp and drew water from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. Talk about obedience to your king. What if we obeyed Jesus like that, right? Like David wasn't even saying to go do this. David's like making a statement, man, I'm just so thirsty. Oh, I know, we got a great idea. Let's go into war and get a, like, these guys are like crazy. And then it goes on, it says, they brought it back to David, but he refused to drink it. Can you imagine the scene? <sighs> we fought, here's your drink. And David's like, I can't drink that. Instead, he poured it out to the Lord. David's like, you didn't get this for me. You got this for God and for his people. And as recognition of that, I'm going to pour this out in front of you as an offering, your offering for your life for God. That's what David was doing for them. Then he goes on, he said, David said, look, I would never do such a thing. Is not the blood of men, is this not the blood of men who risked their lives? So he refused to drink it. Such were the exploit of the three warriors. Abishai, Joab's brother and son, Jeriah was leader of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men and killed them, gaining a reputation among the three. Was he not more honored than the three? He became their commander, even though he did not become one of the three. Benaiah, son of Jediah, was the son of a brave man from Kabzel, a man of many exploits. Benaiah killed two sons of Ariel on Moab, and he went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. <laughs> I love how God just tells these things, like, yeah, one day he just decided to go down into a pit on a snowy day and kill a lion. Like, why? I want to know why he went down into a pit to kill a lion. Did he just feel like it? Like, he's like, oh, a lion. I think I'll go kill it. Like, why? It goes on, it says, he also killed an Egyptian, a huge man. Even though the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went down to him with a club, snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and then killed him with his own spear. These were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehadiah, who was a, had a reputation among the, the three warriors. He was most honored of the 30, but he did not become one of the three. David put him in charge of his bodyguard. Among the 30, and then they were, and there's a whole list of names, but the last name mentioned in verse 39, and Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was the warrior David had killed who was Bathsheba's husband. And God is sure to mention that he was a faithful man to the king even when the king wasn't faithful to him. When you look at this list and see this, I don't know about you, but when I read this, there's something in me that's like, I want to be one of those guys. I want to be faithful. I want the last words that people speak when they think of me. I did a funeral last week. I want the last words that people speak of me not to be, well, I hope he made it, <laughs> Not to be, well, he's, kind of, he's mostly a nice person. I want the last words to be, he fought for God. He lived his life for God. He, he served others. He gave his life. Psalm 84 says, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord of hosts. I long and yearn for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. Better a day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather be at the door of the house or be a gatekeeper of the house of my God than to live in the tents of wicked people. 
You see, we're so busy trying to build something and trying to get to the end so we can look back and say, see, look what I did. Look what I built. When these soldiers were going out into battle, they weren't thinking about what they were building. They were thinking about the fight in front of them. They were just thinking about the next step. There's another guy. I got to kill 800. Okay, this is number 199. Okay, 205. Okay, this is 306. They weren't like thinking long term. They were in the battle. And we're trying to always get people today to think so far out, but not too far out because we don't want them to think about eternity. Because see, when you think about eternity, it brings you back to right now. We want you to think forward about this world, but don't get to eternity because then that'll mess up the plans that we have for you because then you'll start following God's plans instead of the plans we want you to do. See, this is the beauty of this psalm that David writes. He says, I want to build a place for you. David's like, I want to build a place for you, Lord of hosts, but I really, what I really yearn for is to be with you. That's what I yearn for. It's not about money we have in the bank. It's not about the relationships in my life. It's about none of that. I just hope I can stand at the door and greet people. I hope that's my only job. If I could just greet people and say, hello, good morning. When they come in to this heavenly city one day, man, I've, that's awesome. I don't need anything else. I don't need to be a Benaiah. I don't need to be any of these warriors, Uriah. I don't, I don't need that. I, I'm content just to be in your presence and to be around your people and to welcome them to worship. Where is that heart today? We're so busy about thinking about our future and what we got to do and just live your life for Christ. For the king of kings and the Lord of lords, like these men fought for David, who was an earthly king. Ephesians says it this. Paul writes this in Ephesians. He says, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand. What did all those battles we were talking about? Remember I told you to look? Every one of those guys that kept saying, he stood, he stood, he stood his ground. See, we always think it's about offensive and like, I got to go and I got to get him. The enemy will come after you. You don't have to go after him. You don't have to go chasing demons. They'll come after you, I promise. It's a guaranteed promise in Scripture. All you have to do is learn how to stand your ground, to fight where God has placed you, where he has you, and to fight in that moment. That's all you have to do. That's what God calls you to do. Fight in this moment, stand your ground, and let whatever happens, happens. That's the call of God on your life. That's what it means to be a man, to be a woman of God. That's it. And Paul is saying, put on the full armor. And you think, okay, I got the armor on. Let's go kill somebody. He's like, no, just stand. <laughs> stand your ground. And then he says, so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. He's coming after you. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. This is why you must take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist when evil comes after you, because it's coming. And having prepared everything, take your stand. Stand, therefore, Paul says, and he says, here's how you stand. You stand with the truth. It's the first thing. You've got to stand for the truth. And when you stand for the truth and you say, I'm not moving, guess what the enemy decides he wants to do? I'm going to move you. I'm not moving. I'm going to move you. That's, the, that's what the enemy does. 
And you go, nope, I'm drawing a line. I'm going to stand on the truth of God. This is what God says. I don't care about the circumstances around me. I don't care that there's an army of 800 men coming for me. If God wants me dead, he wants me dead. He'll take me to heaven. I'll greet people when I get there. Great. But I'm taking my stand. And I'm not going to do it arrogantly or pridefully. I'm not going to stand there and be like, oh, I'm going to kill it. You just stand. Okay, I'm ready. I'm prepared. I have the truth. Goes on, it says, put it as a belt around your waist. In other words, you need to hold your pants up. It's hard to fight if your pants are around your ankles. That's it. The truth holds your pants up. And then it says, righteousness like an armor on your chest. Because they're going to come after you. And the place that you want to shoot someone, the place that you want to hit someone is in the vital organs. And God says, when you know that you have God's righteousness, when he has made you right, you're not afraid and you know that you're standing on the truth and you're standing on the truth the right way from the right heart. When you do that, you're ready to stand. And then he goes on and he says, and your feet sandaled with the readiness for the gospel. You've got to have traction to be ready to stand and to speak and to fight and push back. And then he goes on and he says, in every situation, take the shield of faith and with it you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation. Protect your mind. Remember that you're saved, that you're God's, that he bought you with a price, that you're his, you're no longer yours. And take the sword of the spirit, which is the last thing God says to be sure you have, but it's very important to have, which is God's word, and pray at all times in the spirit. Take your stand, put on the armor, have your sword ready, and pray. That's a message for anybody, wherever you're at, whatever class you attend this week, whatever friendship you find yourself in, whatever situation, that's God's message because he wants you to have the last words be his words. He wants you to live a life that when you come to the end, it counted for something more than yourself. Let me show you some of the last words. We're going to read some of the last words of people in Scripture. These were the last words of Paul. The last words that we have that Paul wrote were in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he's writing to his disciple Timothy because Paul was about making disciples. He said, I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus who is going to judge the living and the dead. And because of his appearing and his kingdom, proclaim the message. Persist in it, whether convenient or not. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come. Not it might come, could come. No, it will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine. That's people in the church, by the way. He's not talking about lost people. Lost people don't have doctrine. They don't care. He's talking about there's going to come a time when people in the church will say, I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what truth is. I don't care about it, what, what the last days are like. I don't care. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to follow my feelings. I'm going to do what I want to do. And it says, they will not tolerate, but according to their own desires, their feelings, they will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. The Bible won't be enough. We'll buy book after book after book, and it won't change us. That's what Paul's writing. These are his last words to Timothy, saying, Timothy, I'm turning the church over to you. You're going to be in charge of these churches. You've got to know what's coming. You've got to be ready to take your stand. And then he goes on, and he says this. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to miss. Not they might. There are going to be many that turn aside. They don't want to hear the truth, 
and they're going to turn to mist. But as for you, Timothy, be serious about everything. Endure hardship. Be patient. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Look at what he writes. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Who poured out a drink offering? David. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. That's like it goes nowhere. It did nothing good. It just got poured out on the ground. Yeah, it's pretty much the summation of my life, Paul says. And the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. There is reserved for me in the future the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but all those who have loved his appearing. All those that want to see Jesus. And you know what we're going to do with those crowns when, we're getting, when we get them? We're not going to brag about them. We're not going to be like, look at my crown. My crown's prettier than your crown. I got more stones in my crown than you got. No, it says when the angels start to sing, we're going to take the crown off and we're going to throw it at the feet of Jesus. Because it's his crown, not ours. That's what we're going to do. It's going to be beautiful. And Jesus will be like, here's your crown back. Now throw it back up here. Come on, it's like fetch. Like it's going to be beautiful. Right? It's going to be this incredible worship of recognizing that God changed us and we give him credit. And he goes, that's awesome. I love you. What faith. And it's that exchange he wants us to have now. And Paul is telling Timothy, you got to do it. Look at these again, Paul's last words. At my first defense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted. Paul is writing to Timothy in the church in Ephesus. He said, in the last days, this is what's going to happen. People are going to leave. And he goes, it's already happening. They're ashamed of me being in prison. They're ashamed of the gospel because it's right now they're being persecuted. People are being killed and martyred for their faith. And so they're trying to adapt and change the gospel message so it's not so hard. It doesn't require the death of yourself. And he looks and he says, at my last defense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them, Paul says. Gosh, what faith. What faith to look and just say, I, Lord, save them. Don't count it against them. Just like you didn't count it against David. You fulfilled your covenant to him. I don't want to see bad happen to them. I pray for them. I pray that they would awaken and see what they did and what they've done. I pray that you would show them. And Paul's like, they, I'm going to speak the truth. They all deserted. But Lord, I pray that you wouldn't count it against them. Change them. Show them who you are. What a heart. This is when you have your last words and you're thinking about God and you're thinking about the church and people. That's Paul. He goes on, he says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom, not earthly one. <laughs> not he's going to rescue me, I'm going to get out of prison and I'll be fine. Paul's like, I'm done. I, I, I'm trusting in the heavenly kingdom because there's none here left for me. And he says, To him be the glory forever and ever. Look at Jesus' last words in Matthew. He says, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know who wrote those words? King David. Jesus is quoting the Psalms. He's quoting the words of King David. And he's looking into heaven. And he's like, God, why have you forsaken me? If you read the rest of the Psalm, it explains why he was forsaken for our salvation. So he's, he's, he's saying this psalm because like I would say amazing grace and you would say how sweet the, like it's automatic 
That's how the Jews memorized scripture. So when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would have started repeating the psalm in their head and actually preaching the gospel of him hanging on the cross to themselves by the time they got to the end of the psalm. That's why he chose those words. Because he was thinking about others. He was thinking about God's plan. He was exposing his humanity. That, man, God, you have forsaken me, but you've forsaken me for the purpose of others to be saved. He says this, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. To the thief on the cross, Jesus says, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise because you believed on me. In John 19, he says, woman, here is your son. He's saying this to his mother. Then he said to the disciple, John, who was there, here is your mother. Take care of one another. Commit your lives to one another. Hold one another accountable. This is going to be hard. And then he says, I'm thirsty. Who else was thirsty? David. They brought him a drink. He refused it, like David did. And then his last words of his earthly life were, it is finished. I'm done. The work of God in the Old Testament, everything God said, it is finished. Look at what Jesus says after the resurrection. After he comes back to life, here are Jesus' last words. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. These were Jesus' last words. He says it again in Acts 7. He says, 1-7, he said to them, is it not for you to know, it is not for you to know the times or periods the Father has set by his own authority. We always want to know when. Nope. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will stand your ground on the rock, on the solid foundation. As he's, some of his last words that he speaks to Peter, he says this, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Because they were fishing and Simon was still fishing, and he told him, stop fishing. I need you to fish for people. I need you to be about others. I need you to be about people. Simon kept going back to fishing. And he goes, do you love me more than these fish? Do you love me more than even these guys that are around here? Simon says, yeah. He goes, okay, well, then feed my lambs. Shepherd my sheep. Feed my sheep. And then finally, Jesus says, follow me. I'm here. I'm standing my ground. We will march out together together. You just follow me. By the way, when Jesus comes back, you know what we're going to be doing? And all the saints, we're going to be on horses with white robes on that were washed in the blood of Jesus. And all we're going to be doing is cheering on Jesus as he does his work. We don't have a sword. We have no armor. We're literally going to be on horses going, woohoo! And that's all we're going to be doing as Jesus comes back and the sword of his mouth and his words do the work. That's what we're supposed to do with the Word of God. 1 Chronicles 28 says, As for you, Solomon, my son, this is David's last words, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands the intention of every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Realize now that the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. God has chosen you. If you have surrendered your life to Christ, he has said, I have chosen you to build a house, a bodily house for me to live in so that I can do my work in the world. It's the same message. 
And he goes on and he says, Then David said to his, gave his son Solomon the plans. We have the plans of God, do we not? Written down in the word of God. Look at Peter's last words. Like newborn infants, desire the pure spiritual milk so that you may grow by it for your salvation. Since you've tasted that the Lord is good, coming to him a living stone, rejected by men but chosen and valuable to God. You yourselves as living stones are being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're just a pebble and God begins to put those together and make something out of it. That's his church. For it is contained in scripture, look, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. It's about what we're building our lives on, not buildings that we have. David wanted Solomon to build a temple. He hands Solomon the plans for the temple. God has handed us his plans for his life. Let me ask you, have you even read through the plans? All of you are old enough to have read through the entire Bible. Have you done it? And if you haven't, why? They're the plans for your life. They are the building blocks for anything you're going to build on. Holy smokes, what a good father David was to Solomon. What what a good father we have that he gives us his plans. Stephen's last words we looked at last week as he was martyred, preaching the gospel to a bunch of Jews who turned on him. It says, but it was Solomon who built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? What do you think you're going to build for me? Why don't you let me build what I want to build in your life instead of you running out and always trying to get your desires? How about you take my desires and allow me to change you? And when you fail, you can come back to me. I'll forgive you and I'll change your heart. It's the way it worked for David. It's the way it still works for all of humanity. And then he looks at the Jews and he says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, so do I. And I wonder if David was resisting the Holy Spirit by building a temple. I always wonder that. Did God use the temple? Yes. God uses our mess all the time. But God told him, I want to build a temple for you. And David was all about building it for him. For for God. And we can do the same thing. And we looked at that last week. In Acts 17, I'm going to skip that. In 1 Chronicles 29, it says, Then King David said to all the assembly, My son Solomon, God has chosen him alone, is young and unexperienced. I love that. Most of you here are young and unexperienced. Welcome. Welcome to the beginning. (laughs) Right? You're young. It's fine. Compared to God, we're all young and stupid and inexperienced. So, hey, there's that. And it says... The task is great because the temple will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So the best of my ability, I've made provision for the house of God in my life. Now who will volunteer to consecrate himself to the Lord today? Then the leaders of the household, the leaders of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of the thousands and the hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. That's the 37. That's the warriors. They're all like, yes, we want to surrender to God's work. We want to give the best of our provisions. The first of what we get, we want to give away. And that's been our heart since we, since we started this church. We want to give the best of ourselves away the best of what we get away. We want to find ways to do that. Then the people rejoiced because of their leaders' willingness to give. 
for they had given to the Lord with a whole heart. King David also greatly rejoiced, or rejoiced greatly. Then David praised the Lord in the sight of all the assembly, and David said, May you be praised, Lord God of our Father of Israel, from eternity to eternity. David's last words are just worship. It's just pouring out how great God is. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty. For everything in the heavens and on the earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom, and you are exalted and head over all. Riches and honors come from you, and you are ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand, and it is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. It's all about you. Not about my name. It's about your name. It's all about you. But who am I? But who am I, David says, and who are my people, that we should be able to give as generously as this? For everything comes from you, and we've given only you only what comes from your own hand. For we live before you as foreigners and temporary residents in your presence, as were all our ancestors. Read that again. They're in the promised land right now, and there's peace. They have the land of the promise, promised to Joshua. They're living there peacefully. They're getting ready to build a temple. They're rich beyond rich. They defeated their enemies. And God says, this place ain't the promised land. This isn't the full, the promised land is coming. And that's what, he says, you're temporary residents. That's what the Bible says in the New Testament. Paul says we're temporary, or Peter says we're temporary residents. These bodies are temporary. And he says, our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Yahweh, our God, all this wealth that we've provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand. Everything belongs to you. I know, my God, I know, my God, that you test the heart and that you are pleased with what is right. I have willingly given you all these things with an upright heart. And now I've seen your people who are present here giving joyfully and willingly to the Lord. There is no greater thing than to see that happening. And there is no worse thing than to watch people turn on each other, complain and gripe and abandon one another. There is no more painful thing than that. And he goes on, he says, The Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our ancestors, keep this desire forever in the thoughts of your hearts and of your people and confirm their hearts toward you. Give my son Solomon a whole heart to keep and carry out all your commands, your decrees and your statutes, and to build the temple which I have made provision. Then David said to the whole assembly, All of you, praise the Lord your God. So the whole assembly praised the Lord of their ancestors. They bowed down, they paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And the following day they offered sacrifices to the Lord and burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs, along with all the drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. They ate and drank with great joy in the Lord's presence that day. I hope that's what we do at 1.30. <laughs> I hope at 1.30 today when we gather together, we have that kind of heart. That it's just fun to be with God's people and to look at what he's provided, what he's given to the Snyders, the home he's provided, the land, the food that we're going to cook. Like, man, thank you, God. That we don't look around and go, well, I wish it was bigger. I wish there was more. I wish we could do this. They didn't bring out this. They didn't bring the croquet this time. I was willing to play croquet, right? By the way, we are bringing spud guns. So if you never shot a spud gun, we're going to spring a spud gun and shoot spud, shoot potatoes out of a cannon. So please, Come. You'll love it. It'll be a blast. So it's really cool. Like it shoots a potato like a bullet for like 200 yards. It's it's amazing. We're going to do that today. Okay, so moving on. Then it goes on. It says, 
David, son of Jesse, was king. These are the last words that God writes about David. David, son of Jesse, was king over all Israel. The length of his reign over Israel was 40 years. He reigned in Hebron for seven years and Jerusalem for 33. He died at a ripe old age, around 70. Full of days, riches, and honor, and his son Solomon became king in his place. As for the events of King David's reign, from the beginning to the end, note that they are written in the events of Samuel the seer, and in the events of Nathan the prophet, and the events of Gad the seer, along with all his reign, his might, and the incidents that affected him and Israel and all the kingdoms of the surrounding lands. There's going to come a day when you stand before God and this will happen to you. You will give an account. You will pass through the first judgment. The first judgment is, do you know Jesus or not? Right? That's the first judgment the Bible says. And if you know Jesus, you pass that one. You get into heaven, and then God begins to do the second judgment. The second judgment is to show you your works and to show the treasures that have been stored up and to burn away the things, get rid of the things that weren't for him. That's the second judgment, to purify us, to sanctify us, to show us how great God was and how nothing we were without him. That's exactly what God says he wrote down so we could see for this. There's a story in the Bible as we finish. With everything we're going through, there's a lot of people who are giving their last words right now. People in ICUs with COVID. People dying in Afghanistan. Thousands possibly dead in Haiti. There are people dying every day and slipping into eternity not knowing these things people we work around, people we bump up against every day. And there's a story about Jesus in John 11. There's a man, one of Jesus' relatives, Lazarus, who is sick. And they go and get Jesus, and Jesus actually delays in coming. He purposefully doesn't go. He makes them wait. But Lazarus is really sick. I know. He can wait. He gets there and Lazarus has been dead for three days by the time Jesus makes it there. And this is what Martha says. Then Martha, Lazarus' sister, said to Jesus, Lord, if you had, I pray that's not your last words. If you had, then I would. No, God's already done it all. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Well, that's a lie. Lazarus was going to die of something at some point. He wouldn't have died from this, right? Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Look at Martha's faith. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That's an incredible faith to say, I, I understand that God is good and that he will give us a new life and new bodies. I, we, we've taught that to our ancestors. I understand, Jesus, all of that. I just don't understand why you didn't show up for me and show up for my brother. Why weren't you here for us? In these last days, in these last moments, where were you? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will still be alive. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? 
Do you really believe Lazarus will be resurrected? Because if you did, you'd be willing to celebrate right now that he's alive right now. He's not gone. He is alive with my father. And you'd be celebrating that right now, even in the midst of your grief, if you truly believed in the resurrection and the life. Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Messiah, the one promised to save us from the Old, in the Old Testament, the Son of God who comes into the world. And at that moment, Jesus goes to the tomb and he calls Lazarus out. And he yells, Lazarus, Lazarus. And Lazarus in his dead body gets up and comes walking out and he would have been wrapped. Can you imagine? He's like hopping out, right? Like an inch more, like, I don't know if he crawled out, but he would have been completely wrapped and like couldn't talk. His face would have been wrapped. His arms would have been wrapped. Like, mm, mm, mm. what if you were on the scene for that? Freaking out? Right? I don't want to unwrap him because I know what we did to embalm him. That's going to freak. I know, I know. No, 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 no. Not unwrapping him. No, no, take the, take the wrappings off. That's what he told him. Take the wrappings off. How, Jesus, you take the wrappings off. I, I'm not, I'm a, and Lazarus is alive and well and healed. It's a miracle of miracles. Amazing. He said, the reason I didn't come was because I wanted to do something better than what you were looking for. I wanted to give you last words and words that you could take to your grave and you just wanted a quick little healing. Oh, and by the way, if I was Lazarus, I said this before, I'd be ticked off. I was just in heaven with the angels and the Father and I'm like, oh, and then I'm wrapped up and I can't see and I'm in a tomb. What did you just do to me? And then, you know what happened with the rest of Lazarus' life? We know the story. The rest of his life, they're trying to kill him. All the time he's on the run because they want to kill the man that was resurrected. Thanks a lot, Jesus. Could you just leave me dead? You see, sometimes we don't want life because we recognize that the life that God will give us will carry with it the responsibility to stand and to say that I'm going to last and my last words will be the last words I give as I stand and give myself for something greater than myself and I'd rather retreat so I could get what I want. Can I just tell you, the life of David is a life of David failing, getting up, falling down, continuing to fight, to take a stand. That's what God wants for you. What happened? Tell me. We've told you. God has told you. If you don't know Jesus, if you've not surrendered like David surrendered his life to God, if you don't think your last words will be like David's, like Paul's, like Jesus, like Peter's, like Stephen's, then can I just tell you, you can change. You can surrender your life to Jesus. You can begin to get on track with him and get into his word. You can put on the armor of God and you can be changed. And you can give hope to the world around you. Because that's what David's life does for us. It gives us hope. If you don't know him, I pray that you would surrender to him. And if you do know him, just know God has a plan for you. He has a mission for you. And it's to live simple. It's just to take the next stand. He asks you to stand and to stand with all the armor of God and with the word of God and to share the hope that you have around you. I heard a story this week. Someone told me a story this week of how God miraculously put him in a room with people over him in authority. 
And he was faced with sharing the hope of Jesus with them when they asked, where does your hope come from? And he had a decision to make. And in that moment, it could have been very costly for him to make the wrong decision, i.e. earthly cost. And he said, I'm going to share Jesus. And he shared Jesus in that moment. And one of the people on the panel began to tear up. And afterwards, that person called them in the office and said, thank you. I'm a Christian. Those two other people were not believers. And you shared the hope. That's our call. There's a last moment coming for everyone with last words. I pray your last words would be like the ones we've read. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Lord, there is a mission in front of us to tell people the words that you've given us. Your Bible is the last words that you've given to humanity. The canon is closed. There's no new scripture being written. And the Bible has been given to us as your last words to us. Your plans, like David gave the plans to Solomon, have been given. And you ask us just to surrender to you, and you'll do the work. So, Father, we ask you to do that. Lord, if there's anyone here who has not surrendered their life to you, I pray they would. And instead of feeling wrapped up and caged up and dead like Lazarus, I pray they would see that they can have life in you. And for those of us who know you, I pray that we would see that we are your messengers of life to the world. That there is a hope that we have in the midst of the mess and the death and the war and the battles and all the things that we read about. There is a hope that we have that is the same hope that Paul had, that Peter had, that David had. It's the hope of resurrection. That you are coming back. And even though these bodies perish, you're going to do something great. And so we trust you for it in your name. Amen. Amen.